Good evening, Christ Church. As always, I'm so delighted to have the opportunity to preach and to bring God's word before you all. I'll be preaching tonight from the book of Galatians, chapter 5. I'll be focusing particularly on the fruit of the Spirit that Paul lists in verses 22 and 23. But for the sake of context, I will be reading from verse 16 through 24. So Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. I'll read it and then I'll pray for God's blessing. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires." Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would accompany your word tonight, that you would send your Holy Spirit to use your word like a sword to cut us to the heart, but also to encourage us, O Lord, as we stumble about so often in the Christian life, we need the Spirit's strength. We need to walk by him. I pray, O Lord, that you would help us tonight as we study your word and give us a passion to do your word and not merely to leave, having just heard. Oh Lord, we pray all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, one of the things that I certainly am not is someone who is good at interior design, or decorating a house, or making walls and furniture, and using all of these sorts of things to make a place look beautiful. But there is one piece of decoration that I don't think I bought it, but I am the one who put it up in our house, and I put it up in a particular place in our kitchen. It's a beautiful decoration. It's very colorful, and on that decoration, it has listed all of the fruits of the Spirit. And so I can say very literally that every day, multiple times a day, I see in visible form the fruit of the Spirit laid out before me as I'm eating breakfast, as I'm talking to my wife before we go to bed, and really all throughout the day. But I must confess that that hasn't made me much more of a fruitful man in the Christian life, just having the fruit of the Spirit listed on my wall. No, this week as I've been studying the fruit of the Spirit, God has put a burden on my heart that what we need is not fruit that hangs on our wall, but true and abiding, fruit that flows from faith and and accompanies our very lives. Fruit, you might say, that is within our very hearts. 
And so my, t- my aim tonight will be very simple. At one level, we want to understand the fruit, to know what it is, how it works, what it looks like. But we also want to be motivated and pushed that we would strive for the fruit of the Spirit, that we would want it, delight in it, and seek after it by the Spirit's help. So my three points tonight are this. What is the fruit? What are the fruits themselves? How do we define them? Secondly, the fruit in our lives. How do we see the fruit in our lives? And what are some implications of the fruit for our lives? And then thirdly, the reason for the fruit. What is the purpose of the fruit? Why does God insist that we seek after them? Let's start with the first point. What is the fruit of the Spirit? As always, when we come to a new book of the Bible, we need to pay careful attention to context as we open up a new book. One of the things that Paul has been doing in this book is he's been giving us big, big, grand theology. He's been expounding for us the great doctrine of justification, telling the Galatian church that they are justified by the righteousness of another. Namely, Christ Jesus. And that by faith, they have access to that righteousness. It's theirs and it's for them if they believe in him alone. But he's also moved into a new place in chapter 5. He's moved over to the area of sanctification. And particularly, he's been teaching and expounding on the work of the Spirit in the Christian's life. He's been describing the Spirit's work as bringing to Christians a totally new nature. That is to say that the Spirit comes and he makes us born again. He makes us alive. And we are filled with this Spirit. And we become new creations after God and in the image of Christ. But there's a big problem. Sin still remains in us. And so there is a battle waging each and every day between the desires of the Spirit who has made us alive and who works in us and the remaining sin that lays dormant in our hearts. And so Paul has been encouraging us, encouraging the Galatians to trust in and to walk in step with the Spirit. He says this in verses 16 through 17. He says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. Walk in step with the spirit, we are told. Well, what does this look like? How can we walk in step with the spirit? Well, Paul tells us. It is bearing the fruit of the Spirit. The analogy that Paul is using here is a very biblical one. It's one that's used very often. In this analogy, God's people are the soil. God's word is seed that is scattered to that soil. And God himself, through the Spirit, is a gardener, planting, growing, and watering fruits that would be an abundant sacrifice, pleasing to him. In this analogy, the spirit is the worker and you and I are being worked on. The spirit is the one growing the fruit and you and I are the ones living that fruit out. Well, what then is the fruit? 
We have nine of them given to us, and I'll go over them briefly, defining them and trying to give us a a word picture, an idea of what they are so that we can understand them. The first fruit of the Spirit that Paul gives us is love, and this shouldn't surprise us. Love is the chief virtue of the Christian life. In fact, it's what we're to be known for above and beyond everything else about us. We're to be known for our love. Not only is it what we're to be known for, but love is the summary of the whole law, we are told in Scripture. That in order to obey the law of God, really what we need to be doing is loving God supremely. Loving God with our whole mind and strength and soul, but also loving our neighbor as ourselves. And so in this sense, because love is the fulfillment of the law, all of the fruits are really bound up in love. And that if we have love, we have the fruits. What is love? We can define it briefly as acting for the benefit of others, truly and sincerely caring for the well-being and goodness of others rather than for ourselves. It is self-sacrifice, you might say, for God and for man. That is love. We also have joy. Secondly, joy is an abiding cheerfulness. It is true gladness and and happiness and, and upbeatness. It is lasting joy. Ironically, it's what everyone in the world seems to be after, After all, we know this. Everyone seems to want joy. Everybody wants happiness. Everybody is searching for it. And yet the world is looking for it in all of the wrong places. The Christian knows where joy comes from. It comes from knowing God's promises, believing those promises, and resting in those promises. Joy isn't even a result of circumstances, Paul tells us in many other letters. Interestingly enough, scriptures even speak that we're to have joy even while we are suffering. In fact, we're to have joy always because God's promises abide. The third fruit of the Spirit is peace. And there's really two senses in which we can understand the peace that the Spirit gives us. On the one hand, we could talk about peace being a new friendliness with God. That is, no longer is the Christian at war with God. No longer does God oppose you because of your sin. But instead, we've been reconciled with God. We've been brought into his family. We can truly say that we have peace with God. But there's another sense in which Scripture speaks of the peace that God gives us. This might be described more as a state of harmony or rest, a calmness. And this is a result of experiencing God's presence, that he does not depart. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't forsake us, but he's always with his people at his peace. Fourth is patience. This can be described as the ability to receive wrongdoing, the ability to receive suffering or pain or insult or slander, or even things minor like frustration or annoyance. It's the ability to receive those things, but in a godly manner, not with vengeance in our heart, not with a desire to get back at those who have frustrated us or hurt us. Rather, patience is overlooking faults. You might describe patience as love 
which covers a multitude of sins. Fifthly, there is kindness that the Spirit gives us. This can be described as graciousness or generosity. It's a care for others around us, care for their well-being in very practical ways. Scripture speaks of weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice. That is part of the fruit of kindness. Sixthly, there is goodness. This describes high moral character. It describes the man or the woman who knows God's law and who does it, who is holy and walks rightly before God and man. Seventh, there is faithfulness. That is, we could say trustworthiness, loyalty, commitment, and dedication to others. Particularly and most importantly for the Christian, this is going to describe our commitment to God himself. God's word and God's people, that is, his church. Faithfulness is the seventh. Eighth is gentleness. Here, gentleness means something like meekness or humility. It's the opposite in every way of arrogance or pride or boastfulness. The gentle person is not harsh or cruel or severe. Rather, they are calm. They are gentle. And finally, we're told that the ninth fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Self-control is this ability to control your passions, to not let anger and lust and other emotions and desires take control of you so that you act on every fleeting desire or emotion. It's the ability to control yourself, the ability to have self-restraint, the ability to say no even to sin, and even when you want to sin, it's the ability to say no. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. Those are what God is working in his people. Now that we've briefly defined the fruit of the Spirit, I would like to turn to our second and third points. The second point is the fruit in our lives. That is, what are some implications of the Spirit's working of these fruits in the lives of Christians. The first thing I think we need to notice is that in order to bear fruit, any of them, truly and faithfully before God in a pleasing way, you and I will have to be reborn by the Spirit. The fruit is the Spirit's work. The fruit is what the Spirit does in us. He is the one who is sanctifying us and making us holy and purifying us and walking with us. And so true fruitfulness must be born out of faith because it is only by faith that we come to have the Spirit's work in our life. That is that the Spirit comes and revives us, that he brings us this faith, that he begins this work in us. So if we're to have any fruitfulness, we must begin with faith. Jesus himself teaches this in the 15th chapter of John. He makes a marvelous statement. He tells his disciples, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. And then he says to them in, in John fifteen four, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, 
Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. There is no fruitfulness apart from true and real faith in Jesus Christ. You must be reborn. The second thing that I want us to notice about this, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit in our life is just how practical the fruit of the Spirit is. Did you notice how practical and how down-to-earth these fruits are? I think there's a common misunderstanding, especially when we think about spirituality from the perspective of the world. Generally, if we were to believe what we learn about, about true spirituality from the world, we would think spiritual living is a very vague thing. It's a mystical thing filled with highly excessive emotions. We might be told by the world that, that true spirituality is, is being in touch with the spirits around us or being in, being in flow with the energies around us. Or you might see somebody wearing crystals around their neck or saying, you know, the spiritual person is the one who has all of these things in their life. But that's not really helpful spirituality, is it? That's fake spirituality. That's the world's definition of spirituality. The spirituality we see in Scripture is real and practical. It actually changes everything about our lives. Notice that it changes hearts. How can you love purely from an exterior point of view? How can you have joy that is not rest deep within you? The fruit changes our hearts. The fruit affects our attitudes, how we interact with others. It affects our words. It affects our actions. It affects your very thoughts. The fruit in your life affects your relationships. It affects your lifestyle. It's going to mean change and what you prioritize, how you use your time, how you use your energy, how you use your money and your resources, and so much more. The fruit is practical in so many ways. Maybe you could put it like this. The person who is filled with the fruit of the Spirit will be a good husband. The person or the woman who is filled with the Spirit will be a good wife, a better wife. Why? Because she is patient. Because she's exercising kindness. The person who is filled with the Spirit will practically be a better worker because they'll be more faithful because they'll be joyful in their workplace and so on. The fruit of the Spirit is practical in every way. The third thing I want us to see about the fruit in our lives is that the fruit always involves repentance. This is vital. We can't miss this about the fruit of the Spirit. If we want the fruit of the Spirit, we must know that the fruit of the Spirit always and must involve true repentance. Remember the context that Paul has given to us. What comes right before the fruit? Well, he's talking about how the Spirit is at odds with the flesh. This is what he says in verse 19 through 21. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. 
I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, what Paul is doing here is he's giving us the rhythm of the Christian life, or as John Calvin likes to call it, the harmony or the melody of the Christian life. You see, there is a putting off before there is a putting on. There is a casting away of the works of the flesh before there is a putting on and a bearing and a growing of the fruit in our lives. That is, we must first put to death desires for sin in our lives and grow and seek to grow by the Spirit for a love of righteousness. The two in this life will always go together. Paul spoke of this also in Romans 8.13. There he said, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We can't miss this point. If we want the fruit in our lives, we must be people of constant, daily, and vigorous repentance. My third point for tonight is the reason for the fruit. That is, its purpose. What's God doing with the fruit? The first thing I want us to see here is that the Spirit is producing Christ in us. The Spirit is producing Christ in us. If we were to ask this question, where do these fruits come from? Who decided these particular fruits, love and joy and peace and patience? Who, who decided that those would be the fruits and not other qualities? Well, I think the answer lies in this, that the fruit is ultimately describing Christ for us. The fruit is describing Christ who is himself the fruitful man. You see, it is Christ who has and, and shows perfect love for his people. He did that at the cross. It is Christ who has all joy, and he has all joy from the Father. It is Christ who dwells in eternal peace with the Father and the Spirit. It was Christ who was always patient, even when sinners were constantly around him. It's Christ whose kindness knew no bounds. We could say that Christ is even the very definition of all goodness. It was Christ who was faithful to God. Philippians 2 even tells us, faithful even to the point of giving up his very life, for that was the will of God. Gentle in every way, self-controlled in every possible way. You see, the fruit is not random, the fruit points us to Jesus, or as Paul likes to say, Christ is being formed in you. That is what the fruit is all about. Christ is being formed in you. And we see this in multiple places in scripture. I can give you a couple of examples. Jesus says this in John chapter 14, when he's speaking to his disciples and he's about to leave them. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. In other words, it's not random peace. It's not a peace from somewhere. It is my peace I give to you. It's Christ's. John 17, 13, once again speaking and praying for his disciples. He says, these things I speak to you that they, have, that they may have my joy 
fulfilled in themselves. It's not a joy we get from anywhere. It's Christ's joy that he bestows to us through his spirit. Or John 17, 16, just a few verses later, Jesus says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What is the, the spirit growing in you? It is Christ's love, love that he received from the Father that he is giving so graciously to you. And the Spirit has been sent by him on a mission to indwell Christians and to form Christ in us. Make us look like him and act like him and think like him and live like him and please God the way Christ pleased God. That's the essence of sanctification. That's what it's all about. You see, sanctification is not just being better. It's not just becoming a better person. It's not just getting ourselves together. Sanctification is being made after the image of Jesus. That's what we should want. That's what we should desire. That's what we should be aiming for because that's what the Spirit intends to do with the fruit. Finally, the reason for the fruit is that the fruit is for God's glory. The fruit is for God's glory. Go back to the analogy that Paul is relying on here. You are the soil. The Spirit of God is a gardener who is growing fruit. Who gets that fruit? Who gets to enjoy that fruit? Who gets to, to delight in that fruit? Ultimately, it's God himself, isn't it? You see, I think so often we think about the fruits in very selfish ways. We think the fruit is about making me happy. That the fruit of the Spirit and his work will make me whole, make me complete, make me happy in this life. When in reality, that's only a secondary issue. The primary purpose is for the glory of God himself. Be loving for God's glory. Have all joy for God's glory. So tonight, as we think about this fruit, I think we need to ask this important question. Do we think that God is worth glorifying? Is he worthy of our sacrifices? Is he worthy of our lives? Is he worthy for the fruit that I could bear in his name each and every day? Is he a worthy God? And if you're a Christian, and if you know Christ, then you know that the answer is yes, he is worthy, is he not? You know this because you know how gracious and how good God has been to you through Christ. You know that he has given up everything for you, and you know it because he's given you his very son. He is worthy of your fruit. He is worthy that you would obey him each and every day. He is worthy in every circumstance of your life. God is worthy of our fruit. I'd like to end tonight simply by reminding us of a parable of our Lord. He spoke this parable in, in Mark 4, and, and I'll, I'll summarize it. He spoke of a farmer casting his seed onto soil. He, he said that some of the, the seed would be cast on, 
on the path, the rocky ground, and that, that seed is going to be taken by Satan. Some seed would be cast onto, uh, onto rocky ground, but it does not endure, he tells us. Some of the seed will be cast onto the thorny soil, the thorny ground, and, and the, the desires of this world will choke out that seed and it will bear no fruit. But there is a fourth. It will land on good soil. And Christ tells us that that soil will produce 30 and 60 and even 100 fold. By God's grace, let us look to the Spirit. Let's walk by the Spirit. And let's bear fruit for the glory of Christ alone. Let's pray.